Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 7 through 13. The text will be on the screen as I read. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of you who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. I'm Jason Anderson. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity. Um, I just started last week, so or two weeks ago. So if you haven't met me, that's why. And I've tried to start writing down your names if I've met you, and I've probably forgot them. So it's all to say, hello. It's good to be here today to preach the word of the Lord. So we're going to start and remember what Brian ended with last week, and then we're going to keep going through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we only just got a smidge of the passage, I think the Church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, but we're going to go through big picture the whole two chapters. So last week, if you were to remember, Brian ended the sermon with this idea of glory. And I don't know about you, but often pastors kind of talk about what Brian mentioned is the, the weight of glory. I guess there's even a book by Lewis that's called Weight of Glory. And he mentioned, and I'm going to paraphrase, I asked him about it, and I'm probably going to half ruin what he said, but that's okay. He, he mentioned that God's glory can be a comfort in our circumstances, just like in chapter 1. Jesus touches John, and he, I, I kind of say he humanizes John. He brings him back to himself because he falls down. Uh, so in our next two chapters, though, we, we begin to see that the, the weight of God's glory is not just one of consolation. It's not just comforting somebody who falls down at the feet of the glory of God. You could imagine that having just read chapter 1, that Christ's glory really is just that, meeting us in our weakness. But what we see is that it also points out the evil in our hearts. You just look through the rest of chapters 2 and 3. It works at purifying us. It calls us to faithfulness. Faithfulness even to the point of death. If you notice, when we read our passage, the, the passage about Philadelphia, we hear about the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. 
See, that's a image, one of the images of Christ's glory, and that's applied to the church in Philadelphia. And that happens to all the churches, all seven of them. There's some image of God, the sun, his eyes, the stars in his hand, his bronze feet, the first and the last, a sharp two-edged sword that then gets applied to the churches. Sometimes it's a consoling thing. Sometimes it's a scary thing, but it always calls the church back to himself, back to faithfulness, to this relationship with Christ. Like we heard in the call to worship this morning, she said, I, Bree said, I've encountered the Savior of the world. And it's, she didn't say it smells on me, but it smells on me. It's quite the image, though, because I think when, when I reflect on glory, and when, maybe when you reflect on glory, sometimes you feel like it's this impossible thing to describe. What does it mean besides this warm shining of God? Have you ever thought that about glory? I can't. I don't know. what It's anybody's guess. If anything, it's heavy. Pastors talk about kavod being heavy. While reflecting on the Old Testament, there's, a, there's some truth to that. But then it gets fleshed out. Right? Even, even in Exodus chapter 40, for instance, we, we see this image of God's glory coming down in the ta- tabernacle. And what happens? Nobody can enter it. Not even Moses, that super holy dude. Nobody can enter the tent of the meeting that the cloud settled on. The glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. And really the story of the Scriptures is this, that nobody can approach the Holy Lord, the glorious God, without the shedding of blood. That's the whole story of the book of Leviticus and the rest of the Bible. You're in my biggest problem isn't simply a really heavy, hard diagnosis. It's not broken relationships. It's not death. It's that no matter what, we can't approach God in our sinful nature. We won't have God walk among us without the blood of Christ covering us. And that's what we proclaim every week when we eat this communion meal. The blood of Christ is going between us and God and we can have fellowship with him his presence is here among us and that's the story of revelation chapters two and three jesus is walking among his churches whose whose blood is covering them and these churches they require cleansing these churches he's urging them into the glory of god he's commending them correcting them warning them but also promising them Promising them life, eternal. I think as we read chapters 2 and 3, I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're just going to poke at it here and there, so keep your Bibles open. And just as, we, as I mention these churches, you can look at the verses that are there. But as, as we look at these, these aren't just the seven churches back in the middle of nowhere, Turkey. They're somewhere Turkey. But... It's actually, John is writing these seven messages for all the churches in all the ages. So as we begin to muse on this passage, let's pray and keep on going. Our Father, we come to You now and we, we're excited to meet You in Your Word. We are so glad that You walk among Your church. Your blood covers 
our sins. We thank You that Your glory is not something that we simply stand afraid of, but instead it's something that restores us through Jesus Christ, Your Son. We pray this morning that You would open Your Word to us and that it would be clear what it means, not simply to them back there, but to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to boil down these messages, the seven churches, I think the message is pretty simple. I think it would be that John, it's the same thing that John says to the church in Smyrna, I think, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death. So be faithful, I think, is his point. He's calling each church to faithfulness. Be faithful in fighting your own sin. Be faithful in the middle of your terrible suffering. Be faithful even to the point of death. Be faithful. And before we walk over these seven messages, I, I think it's helpful for us to consider one thing that helps us to interpret the whole book of Revelation wisely. And this is the pointer. These two chapters of Revelation are really foreshadowing the rest of the book. Maybe chapter one is the same thing. It's like if you ever took speech class in high school, which I did and I loved so much. My sister was a speech person. I was not. But anyways, the speech class teacher said, you know, you got to foreshadow somewhere in your introduction. You got to tell me what's going to happen in your, in, your, in your speech. So I was supposed to give the audience a heads up about what was coming. John's doing something similar here. He's telling us in the most plain way he can tell us in the book of Revelation, which is not the most plain, but it's pretty plain, what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Now I'm going to leave it to Brian to tell you all the answers, but the dragons and the bears and no, there's, maybe there's a bear. Oh yeah, there's some kind of bear there. Bears, beasts, Babylons, you know, all that stuff. It, he has all the answers for you. Today we're in chapters 2 and 3. This is grounding us for the whole rest of the book. So as we get to, say, chapter, uh, is it 10? With all the, no, it's even further than that. In chapter 12 and 13, where there's all these imageries of beasts that, we, that come from Daniel, one of the things we can ask is, how is John drawing out his teaching from earlier on right here? How are these images helping us understand our true current reality? The, these chapters reverberate throughout the rest of the book. They resonate with the whole book. So, let's think about each of these seven messages and think about what they mean back then, but especially what they mean for us today. What we're going to do is really going to, I'm going to give you some overview of the message to Ephesus, and then we're going to run more fastly through the rest of them. So the first message is to the church in Ephesus. And what we see here, in, what we see in all these messages is that we see an aspect of who Christ is. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, we see that Jesus is holding the seven stars. Who, 
walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then this image is actually applied to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, if you remember, is the church that forgot their first love. Jesus was their first love. And this image of Christ walking among the churches reminds the people that He walks in the garden among His people, His beloved. And yet like Adam, like Ephesus, like us, we all move on to what we think are sweeter fruits. In this message to Ephesus, we see how it, like each of the churches, is confronted with something. Often it's a, a difficulty, a, sometimes it's a sin. But not only is there this difficulty, there's a remedy. And so we see here, even though Jesus confronts the churches, He's not confronting them with fire and brimstone. Instead, Jesus is speaking words of consolation. He's, he's speaking words of restoration. And the words of restoration for almost all of them, especially where there's sin involved, where there's apostasy involved, turning away from following after Jesus, is to repent and do the works you did at first. So for the Ephesians, Jesus says, look, you're so good at, at doctrine, at, at teaching. You can recite the Apostles' Creed, for instance, perfectly, if there was such a thing back then. But there, you're lacking in other areas. You forgot your love for me. Now, as we reflect on that, that that's something that we can easily do too. We can imagine... You're fighting to stay true to the Word. Everything out there, there's so much, even today, there's so much stuff happening. Wherever you live, whatever you're doing, whatever internet you look at. And the simple truth is that these Ephesians, they neglected the, the person of Christ Himself. Once a long time ago they encountered Him, but they forgot Him. They they. They're so stuck in the truth that they forgot their love. And I think we too can easily follow suit. We can neglect pursuing loving Christ. We can neglect pursuing loving the body of Christ in the world. Right? Sometimes it's easier for us to just love those who love us. But we're called to love brothers and sisters in Christ, the ugliest of us the most difficult of us because what Christ has bought them with His blood. Okay. Finally, we see, and this is typical of the letters, John usually gives this potential consequence and then he also gives a, a promise. Now what happens if the Ephesians don't repent? Here's an image for you. God's going to remove their lampstand. In other words, they're not going to be a church of God that God walks among that God the gardener tends. But on the flip side, the mirror image is that there, there is a promise. The promise is glory. You're going to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise. It's in the paradise of God. And, and here we see some of, that's a really clear image. It's at the end of the book of Revelation. Like I said, John's foreshadowing the rest of the book here. Now each of the six churches has similar pieces to it. They have a similar structure. So some churches don't need correction. They're just really going to suffer. And they, 
they, are, they got a different kind of message. They don't have this repent, but just hold fast. Some don't even get a commendation, but more or less, they're the same things. So what I would encourage you to do is just continue meditating on what does it mean, what did it mean, but what does it mean for us today? And what are we meeting in our lives that this, this word of the Lord answers or speaks to today? Now the second church, it's the church in Smyrna. The church is one whose poverty is fake. That's kind of funny. I said that to my wife and she said, I don't know what that means. They're poor, literally poor. They have nothing, materially and financially. But they had a different kind of wealth. They had an enduring wealth, and that is the wealth of Christ. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And remember, Christ Himself, that's something that endures to the end. That's something that doesn't get destroyed by fire. My oldest daughter, she, uh, she sometimes asks me about tornadoes. Is our house going to last in a tornado? Uh, I don't know. I've never been to one. But what I do know is that someday our house will rot. I've been to lots of places where houses are just no longer. Right? The whole city of Jerusalem from the time of David, nothing's standing, more or less. There's no house that's still standing, although you can see a toilet seat somewhere if you look closely. But you know what is going to last? Christ and my life in Him. And that's, what the, that's, the, that's the wealth that the church of Sardis has. And the, for the church of Sardis, they're going to endure a heavy trial. We don't know what it is. And I think John is, is actually giving us something a little vague so that we can understand this is something that's for everybody. You're going to suffer for ten days. Be faithful unto death. Their need was to cling to that wealth even if it brought them to their deaths. Because that's the only thing that's precious. In comparison to Christ, there's nothing that we possess that is ever, that's any more special. If Christ is ours, then we're not going to be hurt by the second death, John says. The third church is, is a town called Pergamum. Like all these cities, they were super pagan. I don't know if we even understand what, we can't fully grasp what that means. These cities themselves competed for the approval of the emperor. In, in, in the Greek East, they, they said, oh, me, 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 look at how much we worship you. And so Pergamum was one of these that they competed for it. They said, look how special we are. And John describes this as a place where Satan's throne is. But they hold fast to Christ's name. What a wonderful commendation. If, if only at my death people said, you know, he just held fast to Christ. I think that's enough. But John has something against him. They also, even though they held fast to Christ, accommodated wickedness. The teaching of Balaam, son of Balak. He's a dead guy. He was dead during the time of John. That image, though, is from the Old Testament. He was a pagan prophet for hire. And this king of Moab says, hey, Balaam, why don't you just 
tell a prophecy against Israel. I'll pay you money. And Balaam tried and tried and tried, and God would not let him. And so what did Balaam do? He says, you know what? God's not going to let me prophesy against these guys, but you know what I can do? Send some women over there. And so there was this incident at Peor. Is that in there? I don't know if it's in this. This incident at Peor that Balaam allures the Israelites with women, which also means they go into idolatry. So in other words, they go into sexual immorality and they go into idolatry. And you know what? Our day is not any different. In every generation, there's this temptation to sexual immorality. Now in our day, I, I feel like it's often more hidden because we can just go on the internet. But it's still there. It's still something to repent of. Our idolatry, I think, is exemplified similarly in our image gazing again on the internet. Vying for attention. Our world is the most saturated with images in, in the history of the world. What should we do but repent? Turn from the sexual immorality. Fight it. Or what's going to happen? Here he says, Christ's going to war with you with the sword of His mouth. Verse 16. And if you are not sure about that, Christ's Word conquers every time. No questions. In the, in the rest of the book of Revelation, anytime God speaks in Christ, it's finished. The saints don't even need to fight. But to those who conquer, to those who are overcome, they'll eat bread from heaven and they'll have a new name. Thyatira similarly struggle with sexual immorality. This is difficulty from within, but they also had difficulty from outside. And Christ's searching eyes searches this church and sees their need. They eat food offered to idols. Now, if, if you read the New Testament, you know some people, Paul kind of says, well, sometimes it's okay. You, yeah. you have to be careful in how you eat it, though, that you're not causing a brother to stumble. They must have thought that they could have Christ and a little bit of the world, too. They might have had this feeling, well, I don't want to be considered a complete outsider because right? to, to eat, avoid eating meat would have completely made you outside the bounds. Their whole economic system was wrapped into worship of an idolatry. John indicates that the church seemed to have been growing. I know your works, your love and faith and servant and patient endurance. You're getting up there, guys, but you still, you're still allured by the praise of the world. Perhaps we too want Christ. There's still some attractive, idolatrous thing in the world to know what things of the world are acceptable for us to eat of and for those things that we should actually just shun. It actually takes a lot of wisdom. We've got to consider it. 
repent of the sin and conquer and endure till the end. That's, that's something that you can just go home and talk in your small groups about or, <laughs> or you can ask me about. I, I, I think each one of us has a different thing where we're allured by the praise of man instead of the praise of God. Sardis is the fifth church. They have a reputation of being alive. You can imagine it, imagine it being the church just down the block. There's a church over there, and they're so great. I, how do you know? They're quite respectable. They seem Christian. They say they're Christian. This church has the church reputation of being alive, but John and Christ knows their hearts. Inside, they're dead. Or you could say they're on life support. The, the church once had a vital ministry, whatever it, it was, but for whatever reason, they're no longer pursuing it. Again, this is a really generic thing that happens time and time again. What should we be pursuing but a ministry that follows Christ and applies His Word to all things? And yet, even this church, they're called dead, but there's an opportunity to return to Christ. All is not lost. Here, this is another wonderful application or implication. Christ's love even calls the things that seem the most dead. And you know what? Christ's Word makes things alive. He makes us alive with His Word. Like Jesus touching John in chapter 1, He calls Sardis to come back. Be vigilant. Strengthen what you've got left. Be faithful. The sixth church, Philadelphia, is one of the two that's not corrected. They had difficulties from people outside of themselves. Like another church, there, there are some that say they are Jews but are not. And they're attacking this church. Christians have always claimed the Old Testament as their Scriptures. And so perhaps there's some muddling between the two and attacking at those, this, this church in Philadelphia. And the church didn't seem to have any power. All they could feel is the attacks. They were small. They were afflicted. But they were faithful. There are many times at churches when we as individual Christians can find ourselves in the minority. I think it's a better place for us to be. To be in the minority could have easily made the Philadelphians timid, afraid, just beaten up and bruised and wanting to hide. Maybe even timid as mice. But it seems that their work's are still pleasing in Christ's sight. And that's what matters. They worshipped. They served. They lived. They were the aroma of Christ out in the world. And what does it say? God will establish them forever in His heavenly temple as a permanent fixture, as a pillar. I mean, if you're a pillar, you're stuck. Which doesn't seem too nice except if you're stuck in the presence of the Lord forever. That's just the image. It's not literal, a pillar, but this is a glorious image. 
no matter how small a person might feel, those who are in Christ and who endure to the end, there's this beautiful result of fellowship with Christ that cannot be moved, that no one can take away. Final church, Laodicea, has nothing good that Christ commends. They are lukewarm, which is a bad thing. I like lukewarm water, but I guess the Bible doesn't. Remember, Christ says He is the faithful witness. But these here are the unfaithful witnesses. What are they doing but just sitting comfortable in their wealth? You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I have a recliner I can sit in, and it's nice. But you know what? Money can't buy the things that, that matter. Their money can't buy one drop of living water. Their money can't buy one piece of heavenly bread. We, we, in the same way, can't imagine that being comfortable is a blessing from God necessarily. There's lots of wealthy people that sit on beaches all day long and have nothing to do with Christ. John says to this church, you're naked. Now, of course they're not naked. They have clothes. They have fancy clothes. They have purple, purple sides on it. They're pitiable. They're poor. They think they're all right. And yet, for those who are in Christ, we see these people and say, man, don't you remember what it means to be known by God? What's the answer? Buy gold. <laughs> they already have gold, but it's nothing. They should buy true gold. How? I think it's because if you're rich in Christ, then you can buy that heavenly gold that John is imagining. Someone said, Laodicea's illness, what can it be remedied by? By one thing, through a renewed relationship with Christ. Now, I think this is the message of our passage. For each one of us, it, it begins with our fellowship with Christ. My daughter went to Sunday school class at a, a church recently, and the Sunday school teacher said, you know what? There's a difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ. And this is the thing. John is calling the churches back to knowing Christ as a person. Remember, he's walking among the lampstands. He's, he's with his church. Now, in an in a odd sort of way, all these churches have had their lampstands removed. But this is the seed of the church. They've multiplied throughout the whole world. And so now Christ walks among His churches across the whole world. And He's still tending all the wicks of the churches. And He's taking care of them. He's calling them to faithfulness. He's calling them to consider their sin and repent. He's calling them to endure even to the point of death. We're not alone. We have Christ. 
And so we, we can't forget that, that we have what's truly precious. We've got to cultivate this love for our Lord as we fight sin, as we pursue faithfulness. You know, I think one of the most wonderful things, the, ways, the best way that we can do that is by singing songs. Somebody said this week to me, you know, past, nobody remembers what the sermon says, but everybody's going to sing the songs that uh, we sing in church on a Sunday. Right? They're, they're helping us meditate on what was proclaimed, but then also meditate and cultivate our devotion to our Lord. And this, this is the call of the glory of God in Christ. Hopefully we never forget that. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You and we ask that You would support us as we seek to be faithful. We thank You that You walk among Your church. We thank You that that is across the whole world now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.